Turn with me to Hosea chapter 9 as we continue our study in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 9. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we open Your Word, we pray that You would teach us Your truth, that You would show us the hope that we have in You, that we would see both both your sovereignty and your goodness, that we would understand that you are just and that you are merciful. Lord, we are thankful for the gifts that you give us. We pray that you continue to bless us as we open your word so that we might understand, so that we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read this passage this week, I really focused in on the last verse, verse 17, and it brought to mind this image of the wanderer. You know, in movies and in books, this image of the wandering person kind of has a certain appeal to us if we're honest. This is done a lot in movies and books, a whole, a whole lot, because we're so attracted to it. We like the idea of someone who kind of makes their own rules, right, and lives by their own code, drifting in and out of people's lives, but not needing anyone, but everyone seemingly needing them. It's a very attractive kind of thing to it. We all kind of go through this stage of life. Some of us never leave it. There's a good thing about independence, but we aren't made to be completely independent at all. We are made to be a people who need one another and who are dependent upon our Creator. So the image of a wanderer in Scripture many times is a cursed image. Not to be glorified, but to be feared. And that is exactly the image that we have before us today in Hosea chapter 9. In our passage, we have the people, a picture of the people of God as wanderers. And it's precisely because they have chosen to make their own rules and live by their own code that they have become this. They have trivialized the immortal and invisible God and they have rejected his word and exchanged it for lies. And because of this, God has departed, leaving his people to wander without purpose or direction. This was a danger for God's people then, and brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a danger for his people today. It has been for centuries. Whenever we reject God's word, there are lasting consequences for that. So as we move through this text today, you'll see how this idea is going to work itself out in a few ways. First, God as a lucky charm. Second, God's word as a snare. And then lastly, God's glory Departed. So with that, let's look together at the text, Hosea chapter 9. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. We'll be looking at chapter 9 in its entirety, starting at verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. 
You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall be, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like the mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall, shall be defiled. For their bread shall be, shall be for hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. <coughs> like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away, not fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. For the last several weeks in the book of Hosea, we have dealt with this same kind of idea, have we not? We've read a lot of difficult things concerning the nation of Israel, and we kind of have it building here to verse 17 of chapter 9. As we move forward out of 9, we'll see less of these judgment passes, not that we're going, passages, not that we're going to leave them completely. There's a few more, but we have a lot more application for the people of God. What should you do? But if we move too quickly through this in our minds, we might miss some very important application for us today, particularly in how we view ourselves in relation to the world around us. The scripture is very much a mirror by which we can see our own sin. So as we move through this, as always, I encourage you to pray for that mirror to show you clearly the way we are like Israel here so that we might turn from those ways and turn to Jesus 
And that brings us to the first point, God as a lucky charm. Let's look again at verse 1, chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God, you have played, or you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So here, again, we have this continual charge against Israel, probably every chapter in this book is going to have that, their adultery with other gods. The gods in view here are the Canaanite fertility gods, which is why God alludes to the threshing floors here as he passes judgment on Israel, rather than those threshing floors being a site of reaping God's harvest, the thing that God brings to the people, they have instead called upon the false gods of the Canaanites to bring them their harvest. And so God is leaving them to that. This is why in verses 2 and 3, we read that He will no longer feed them from their threshing floors and their wine bats, and that He will move them back into captivity, which is what that whole idea in verse 3 about their return to Egypt is about. One thing there at the end of verse 3 that I kind of picked up on, and it kind of goes goes forward in the next few verses as well, is at the very end it says, they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Which has to do with the religious activities of the people of Israel, right? We all know about the cleanliness laws in Leviticus and so forth how they should eat certain things and not eat certain things. This is coupled with allusions to their other religious activities. In the following verses, in verse 4, we pick up on drink offerings and sacrifices. In verse 5, we read about appointed festivals and feasts. All of these things are scriptural appointments for the people of God. And what does God say about these things in verse 6? For behold... They are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken over by weeds and the nation of Assyria. And it might be easy for us to read this and think concerning the nation of Israel, all of these sorts of religious rite illusions, and think, why would they care? Why would they care if they're going to eat unclean food or that they're not going to have any festivals or drink offerings? This is a society that is shown over and over that it does not have time for, the, for communion with God. Rather, they go after other gods nonstop. They go and seek other nations for refuge other than the, rather than their God. They shouldn't care if their religious relics and rites are going to be destroyed, right? I mean, if their temple went away, would it really matter to them? If their drink offerings and festivals just stopped, should it bother a people who chase after other gods almost nonstop? Instead, This would be a major tragedy for them. But not because they value God. But because they're in love with the idea of Him. I think you see a great example of this every year around Christmas. Right? As we strike up the the war on Christmas yet again. The happy holidays versus merry Christmas wars that have plagued us for years. People will say things like that. There is a war on Christmas. Which... I just look out and I don't see that happening, but I guess people are doing other things than I'm doing. 
You can't take the Christ out of Christmas is one of my favorites um, that, that I hear a lot of things, a lot of people say. Companies like Lowe's and Home Depot will sell holiday trees and Christians will be in an uproar that they're not called Christmas trees. And Starbucks will print happy holidays on their cups and Christians will lose their minds. Not at paying $7 for coffee, but at not having Merry Christmas on that cup. And they will complain about Starbucks and Lowe's and Christ out of Christmas all the way to their travel game on Sunday. Or right after they yell at a server at a restaurant on Sunday morning after church. They'll get upset about removing God or removing under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they'll forsake their marriage vows by using pornography. They'll demand that we keep in God we trust on our pennies, but they'll use their position in business to lie, cheat, and steal their way to wealth. And all that wealth saying, in God we trust. We don't want God. We just want a lucky charm. Israel obviously didn't want communion with their creator. They demonstrated that in how they act over and over again. No one is going to read the book of Second Kings, particularly at the end, and think, you know what, these people really love their God. No one's going to think that as they read here in Hosea or as we read through Isaiah and think, man, those people really loved God. I wish he would just leave them alone. They wanted to carry him around like a keychain that can be rubbed for good luck. And I struggle in many ways of seeing the church as any different today, particularly as you read things on social media. You'll have a Christian post the word prayers when someone says something's going on in their life that's difficult or the little hands, they don't even bother with the word anymore, it's just hands now. But then on another post, they'll call someone an idiot, which we just learned is murder. It's incredible. We want a fun easy God that hangs out with us and loves everybody instead of the one who satisfies his wrath on many, many good people. And I recognize this is a hard teaching. It's hard because we're all hypocrites from one to one degree or another. And that's just the hard truth of life. In the church, we must take God at his word. And this is where the real separation begins. We start to see problems with his word when we'll start to separate from him and desire our own path, desire to, to wander, and this only leads to death. This brings us to the next point, God's word is a snare. Look with me at verse 7. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity, and great hatred. The prophet is a fool. We are told here. These are the words that Jesus dealt with in his ministry. Jesus was called such things. He was called a, a drunk. He was called demon possessed for his teachings. The prophet Jeremiah was regularly given death threats and the, the threat of public torture and shame. Many prophets in the history of Israel were killed for their faith, and obviously we've seen the same thing in the history of the church as well. 
When God's word is proclaimed, the people have simply grown accustomed to it. The people need something more. So the prophet, when he comes and he's speaking the words of God, the very words of God handed to the man, he is called a madman, which is by default calling God the same thing. Because of Israel's view of God's word over her history, this has all kinds of results attached to it. We read this in verse 9, and particularly they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Remember, we read about Gibeah in our uh, study in the book of Judges. If you guys remember the last three chapters of the book of Judges, there was a rather unsavory kind of story that took place. Very difficult even to read and study and understand how something that horrible would take place. Derek Kidner in his commentary said Sodom and Gomorrah could teach Gibeah no lessons. Gibeah was known for the horrible sin that they committed against the Levites' concubine there in Judges 19, if you remember. Their departure from God's word led to that kind of corruption. Hosea gives us the proper understanding here of the prophet as well. Rather than a fool or a madman, the prophet stands as a watchman. There in verse 8, the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. The pronunciation of God's word is, is like the watchman sounding a warning. And it's not the invaders that are drawing near to the people of God. Understand this, brothers and sisters. When the prophet sounds a warning, it's not as if some invader is coming. It's the Lord Himself that is coming. And when the Lord draws near, who can stand? But rather than hear these words of warning, Israel has set up a snare for the prophet. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of God. They've set up a snare As you look in Israel's past, the prophets were not treated well. Many of them lost their lives because of their ministry. In many ways, the modern day pastor has the same kind of task, preaching the word of God in season and out of season, as Paul instructed Timothy to do. And the expectation is that the people won't listen. Rather, Paul says they'll gather for themselves teachers that will tickle their itching ears. We read this in 2 Timothy 4. And while the task of the pastor is, is a particular task, every Christian, this involves all of us, is, is called to carry the good news of Jesus, to be a preacher by which the unsaved can hear the word of God concerning their salvation. And this too will come with rejection. Absolutely it will, both in the light social kind of rejection and in the heavier, more physical kind of rejection. And it's not because the believer doesn't believe God's word. Understand that. The believer doesn't reject, or the unbeliever doesn't reject us and persecute us because they don't believe in God's word. Most people also don't believe in something called the great pumpkin. But they ain't going to reject anyone who does. They're not going to persecute them, torture them, kill them for that. There's nothing really at stake with saying, I believe in the great pumpkin. Everybody's just like, okay, you go do that. But the unbeliever does believe in God's word. And they willfully reject it. 
just as they reject the Savior proclaimed by that word. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. This is a very familiar passage to us. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Romans 1, I'm going to read 28 through 32. Because I think this just fits perfectly with what we're dealing with here. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And this is the one that really got me. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only know God's decree, but they know the punishment for not following God's decree. Though those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The whole chapter, Romans 1, is about that idea, but 32, I think, sums it up great. After a long list of evil deeds, he writes, though they know his righteous decree that those who practice them deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This was written 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters in Christ, not 20 minutes ago. Yet it rings very true today. Very true. The church has been tasked with taking the gospel to the world, teaching them all that God commands. And with that message, there will be rejection. In fact, that can't be helped. The preaching of God's word will, by definition, bring rejection. Surely there will be there will be some who will turn to Jesus. Absolutely there will, because God is using the preaching of his word to do that kind of work. But we know just from experience that most won't. Most will choose the wrath of God rather than his mercy because man looks at the prophet of God and says, fool, madman, just as they looked at Jesus and said the same. So what do we do, church? We must be vigilant because there will come a time when even in this country we won't be free to preach such things and we'll have to decide that time has already come for so many who've chosen to please society rather than to preach God's word to them and the stakes really couldn't be any higher. It's not about getting people to like us. We want we want that, right? We want to have relationships with folks. But it's, it's about preaching the only salvation for the souls of man. And we see that in the front and center in the next section of our text, bringing our third point, God's glory departed. Look with me again at verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and concentrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. It's almost this kind of celebration going on, right? When God talks about how He first found Israel and how He 
he saw them. They were like grapes in the wilderness, like the first fruit on the fig tree for that season. Just this anticipation and this great joy associated with that. This great thing out of nothing. Yet they exchanged that sweet relationship with their Lord for a shameful, shameful thing at Bel Peor. This is accounted for in Numbers 25. You can study that on your own. This idea of Bel Peor. But the people there, the people of Israel, went after the Moabite women and the Canaanite gods. And in the verses following, you can see God cursing them there at Bel Peor. And all of this in Hosea culminates to these last three verses. Where God says it was at those events that He first started hating them. Verse 15. Every evil of theirs was in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Gilgal is there associated with Bel Peor. There I began to hate them. Understand, church, when you hear someone say that God doesn't hate sinners, it cannot be justified anywhere in the Bible, that statement at all. In passages like this, we see him saying that about his own people. He hated them because of their adulterous sin. Thankfully, we know that those in Christ are no longer hated, but loved. But not everyone is in Christ. Specifically here, he is talking about those people who identify as the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament, recognizing in either case that there are many who will call themselves God's people, but only those who repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. There is judgment coming upon the unbeliever. Even though this is dealing with the people of God, there is judgment coming Upon the unbeliever, make no doubt, if you are here and you do not believe in Jesus, this is for you. Hear this. Repent. Turn from your sin. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. But for the church, there's something much deeper going on here. Because there are many among the church who are here only in name. Just as Paul said, not all who are called Israel are Israel. Not all who call themselves the church are counted among God's people. For some, they are among those who God will say, I love them no more. All princes are rebels. And this is the real thrust of what we read in verse 17. My God will reject them. Why would he do this? We'll just read the previous 16 verses because of their sin. Because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. For Israel, this is a historical fulfillment that actually occurs. The ten tribes of Israel that made up the northern kingdom would be scattered across the whole region that would never come back to Israel fully. For the church, this is a strong warning for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we preach Christ every week. Those who have never heard the name of Jesus absolutely need to hear about Him. Those who have heard His name every day need to hear about Him all the more. We don't earn our salvation in any way. 
thankfully. Jesus paid for it 100%. And those who are saved know the righteous decree of God and will practice those things. Let us be faithful preachers of God. Let us faithfully seek Him out as well as we're going to deal with as we get into chapter 10, this idea of seeking God. Brothers and sisters in the church, let us be a people who seek out God and desire nothing more than to do His commands. Let us rest in Jesus for our salvation. Let us walk in those good works that have been prepared for us that we might walk in them. Let's go to Him in prayer.